This was a vision. I'm telling you, these people are Satanists. As I sit here, they are Satanists. Look, the world is full of these kind of things. Black masses, mutilations, mutilations. The incubus, the succubus. I'm telling you, we got to go down to the religious supply store. We got to get ourselves a couple of gallons of holy water. My cousin Jerry's a priest. He can get us a deal. Do you want him to take your family, kidnap them, tear their livers out, and make some kind of satanic pate? Hey, once they get in here, it's over, pal. Trigger warning. This podcast may include explicit content that will take you out of your comfort zone and make you question reality. Listener's discretion is advised. Hello everyone! Today the one and only Gary Wayne joins us once more to blow the case wide open on the Nephilim. It's always an honor getting to have these conversations with Gary and he never disappoints. Today, Gary and I will be exploring sacred sites and interdimensional portals. How do they connect back to the Nephilim? I hope to answer that question for you today. And of course, to find more from Gary Wayne, you can actually go to CosmicPeachPodcast.com and click the Meet the Guests tab on the website. And it will take you straight to his website where you can purchase the book or read up some more information on Gary Wayne. Again, I had some fluish type of illness going on when I was recording these episodes. So, um, if my voice sounds a little bit off, that's why. But it doesn't take away from the jaw-dropping content. And this one is absolutely stunning. I just love this episode so much. But sit down, buckle up, and prepare to be amazed. Here we go. everyone thank you for listening to another episode of cosmic peach podcast we have the one and only the man the myth the legend return once again mr gary wayne author of the genesis 6 conspiracy gary how are you doing very well and uh so happy to be uh, back with you and look forward to discussing whatever you have on your agenda because i think whatever we talk about if we do our jobs properly we'll get the audience thinking and maybe looking yes. a little deeper at things yes and i wanted to ask you before we jump right in how's the book um, coming the book is done uh except for some other stumbling blocks so it's got to go through the usual publication queue editing marketing artwork 
all sorts of things that go into it. But the publisher that uh, I published the first book with Deep River Publishing is the son who I was in contact with the last couple of years over writing the book and stuff. He left the company just as I was made notification to um, say, hey, my book's ready. What do you think oh, about yeah. what do you think about it now that you see some sample chapters, that type of thing? And he and uh, he said, uh, fine, let me let me uh, go through it. And then he didn't get back to me for a couple of weeks. And then so I uh, got a hold of the uh, uh, the owner who I had originally started uh, with uh, when the book was first published. And he said, yeah, my son left and he's 80 years old, the publisher. So. He said, I'm looking at winding the business down. So, you know, for a long-term positioning, we can, we could do it, but I think you'd be better off if we positioned you with another publisher, somebody who's a little bit larger, who can take over a publication of the first book, do the second book, have things sort of set up longer term, maybe has a little bit better marketing and, and distribution because of their size. So he's working as my agent to place it. Um, oh, still have an okay. option for them to go through it and publish it, but that would still place me with the logistics of landing it somewhere else. And I want the distribution aspect of it because when I live in Canada, so uh, shipping back to the U.S. is a significant mm -hmm. cost, which is why my signed copies cost more than you can pick it up at, uh, at Amazon because it cost me $25 to ship it back mm -hmm. to the U.S. side. Mm -hmm. So and, you know, managing the shipping side, let alone just the signed copies I do, but if I would have to do all of the shipping to Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all, I mean, it would just become a bit nightmarish and it's not as cost effective as I would like it to be, which is why I never wanted to do self-publishing. And, you know, I like the idea that, you know, they can get it into more locations and get the, get yeah. the book out there. So. It's not, it's not, you know, it's not about, you know, the sort of the greed aspect of it, because, you know, you really got to sell a lot of books to make any real money at this. It's more about how do you get that message out and make it easy for people to get that book. So I want to make mm -hmm. sure all of that is in, is, is in place. And I also want to make sure that we have a price point where readers can afford to buy the book. So right. there's all and of those different things. People are hungry yeah. for it. Yeah. They're just yeah. starved for this type of information. Yeah. And one of the other challenges is, is that the cost of doing books has gone up in the last couple of years significantly because of COVID and inflation and a whole oh, bunch yeah. of other self-inflicted wounds. Um mm -hmm. And so it's up 30% on the cost side. So yeah. it's significant. So I'm, I'm trying, still trying to figure out a way to keep, keep the price point low. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so that, that might mean, mean that, you know, I might not do some of the things that I would have liked to have done in this book, uh, you know, <laughs> similar to the kinds of things I left out of the first book. So, you know, I don't have a glossary in my book. Um, oh, right. Right. I don't have pictures and stuff like that. So just but things the, all that the we, information yeah. will still be there. So that's yeah, the for, important part. For me, it's the information uh, that I write about. It's the sourcing that I provide, all of the footnotes, the bibliography, and that people mm -hmm. can go back and verify what I'm saying, agree or disagree, but that's where the source comes from. And and you'll mm -hmm. be better off knowing and, and deciding for yourself. I think what happens a lot of times is people speculate too much. So when I when I 
write something that is my speculation, I kind of like to show that in terms of what my thoughts are in terms of, right. of and, and keeping that yeah. separate from here's the sourcing and here's how all of those pieces fit together. Well, I'm hoping to see the Genesis 6 conspiracy part two available yeah. soon. I am just dying for it. I know yeah. it's going to be another crusher. Yeah, but I hope so. And I've decided on the subtitle. Uh, the subtitle, yeah. So, you know, the subtitle of the first book for people aren't familiar with it is is how uh, secret societies and the descendants of giants plan to enslave humankind. So that should sort of grab your attention one would think right there um, yeah <laughs> right there and genesis 6 conspiracy might grab your attention too so this is the genesis 6 conspiracy part 2 and the subtitle unless there's a you know change that the publisher wants to make but i think this is a pretty good subtitle is is how understanding prehistory and giants helps to define end time prophecy so i go really deep into this book about everything in in the bible about giants uh hybrid giants uh the angel angelic hierarchy how that interacts uh and then i start as I go through that process of educating how many giant nations are actually in the Bible, I start to link passages that are important for end time prophecy. And then I'll transition in the last couple of sections into straight end time prophecy. So, and you'll get some chronology and you'll get full explanation. You'll see the context of a lot of the allegory that I built up in the first half. In the meantime, I tell, I think a story in the first sections of the book that hasn't been told, and it's sort of a complete sort of analysis, not a complete analysis, but an analysis of not only the different giant nations and other nations that people are saying, well, kind of who are they, but also I walk through um, all of the uh, the what I would call the giant wars, and it includes Genesis 14. It includes all the different campaigns, and I split them up into the campaigns for the conquest of the covenant land. And uh, oh, wow, yeah. So I mean, this is this book really goes deep. It it identifies the hybrids and uh, who their patriarchs likely are from the Raphaim and why those patriarchs aren't in the uh, mm -hmm. table of nations, and so. Even if you're not a sort of a Christian, um, if you if you're looking for sort of like the deepest source on on giants, um, this is it for from the Christian perspective. And then it dovetails perfectly, I think, with uh, I'm a little bit biased on that, but I think it dovetails well with the first book. And I've done it in a way so it's not redundant. So you can read them separately. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you'll want to read. The other one, if you're reading the first one, you want to read the second one and vice versa, because it just goes into areas where, I mean, it was a big book the first time. And this is, I, 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 I did guarantee it's going to be a little bit smaller. Um, so, and it is, it's not a whole bunch smaller. So it's only 84 chapters this time. And it's written <laughs> right. as opposed to 98. And so... And it is, again, written in the same sort of style that every chapter is a mini story and it leads into the next story or into the next chapter as a new mini story. And that information will keep sort of coming up as the book unfolds. I just absolutely cannot wait. I know it's going to be great. And speaking of stories... I kind of told you a little bit about what I wanted to do before we started recording, but for the listeners, mm -hmm. I have decided to tell Gary some stories tonight, 
And I have listened to so many Gary Wayne interviews and they always have a lot of questions for you, but they never really contribute much to the interview process, in my opinion. So I thought I would kind of share with you some research that I've been digging into and just get your thoughts, your, you know, unfiltered Gary Wayne thoughts on these stories. And I want to start with some research that I've done about sacred islands and the mythologies around them. So if you're ready, I'm going to just read for you this little excerpt here. Sure. Okay. So there is a chain of more than a hundred small islands called the Aleutian Islands off of the Alaskan coast. And during 1945, 14 crew members of the U.S. Army transport called Delaroff documented strange UFO activity near the island of Adak. And they reported objects rising from the sea and hovering over them before shooting off at unimaginable speeds. And UFO sightings in this area continue to this day. And why this is significant to me is because the native island people called the Aleuts believe this is the exact spot where their gods descended from the skies. And the creatures could also transform into animals. They had shape-shifting capabilities. And they are, the Aleut native people are supposedly direct descendants of these creatures who fell from heaven to this island. And it's funny that we call them descendants, as in descending. Yeah. <laughs> but when thinking of fallen angels, do you think that the government, in this case, like the uh, crew members of this U.S. Army transport who are seeing all this UFO activity, do you think that the government is just like tapping into the energy, this fallen angel energy at these sacred sites where possibly the fallen ones were walking among us? Yeah, interesting story for sure. I haven't heard that level of detail on the sort of mythology of the Aleutian Islands and likely connections, depending on how you want to interpret that, to not only, you know, um, got something on my screen that's, there we go shouldn't be there <laughs> it's gone now um but it's so similar to other creation stories around the world and whether or not you interpret that as from the gods as as a christian would understand it the fallen angels or it's an alien a mythos they seem to sort of intersect and it's just a matter of really how you're defining those ancient aliens right so Fallen angels are essentially alien to this world. They are a spirit being and likely from another dimension as opposed to another planet as this, as what I think is more of a Absolutely. deception or a misdirection uh, than reality and that they come out of the sea in the story in terms of um, these unidentified flying objects, right? So that would suggest that um, there's a connection there between 
portals, which a lot of them are underwater. And just as you see a lot of allegory in that, in a lot of uh, tales, uh, like the ladies of the lake are guarding portals in the King Arthur tales, for example. Um, so look for that in polytheist mythology because portals are everywhere. And it's just a matter of having the knowledge and the tech or, and or the technology to access that portal. But a lot of them come through, as, as you mentioned, the sea, and that is usually around a specific island. And so whether or not that is uh, part of that whole area for a portal or not, uh, just seems to be a constant. And within that sort of constant, you have um, this access to the portal to another dimension or what they would call in polytheism Sheol, or, or I mean, that's in Judaism, uh, could be uh, Hades is what I'm looking for, the underworld, the other world, mm -hmm. the netherworld, and when there is just Argatha, there are just so many names around the earth and they all have different entrances around the earth. And every people believe that there's a separate creation story that's associated with their island or their mountain or their tree, which is another sort of constant. And so typically you're going to have these sacred islands, these sacred mountains, these sacred monuments, these sacred polytheist worship centers. Uh, again, you, you start to see that sort of constant um, that's used in all of these uh, creation stories and, and, and descendancy stories and that they were specifically there because it was a holy place and mm -hmm. or and it's probably more and than or it's a place that would have specific kinds of energy yeah. So access to the underworld, specific kinds of energy that they could tap into with their technology uh, and just sort of take it to a whole different level than what we can kind of imagine. And so we might also understand that as ley lines, right? Ooh, yeah. And if you trace uh, monuments, they're placed on these ley, these ley lines. Um, and they go in, you know, all Chris sort of across all the world, but there's also another one that works sort of like the parallel lines, right? So you've got like the main one that you see so much activity around the world, around the equator, right? So, and you've got, take that around the world and it's just a center of activity, not only for uh, ancient civilizations, creation stories and the alien mythos, um, but it also is a place where significant monuments are built, like the pyramids, for example. Uh, and Mount mm -hmm. Hermon would be close to that sort of uh, ley line as well. So I think there's something to that because accessing the power of the universe through their gods and their religion is sort of kind of the whole purpose because through that you create immortality. So. Now, this story about that they are the descendants of these fallen ones who come from around the world uh, is, again, a constant. And, and the term fallen is also a constant, right? It's not just that yeah. these were like they, they come to the earth in a lot of cases down from the skies or they're thrown down from the sky or they're isolated. Yes. It's it's similar in, in all of all of the stories. And 
So you have that, you know, again, whether or not it's with the Popol Vuh and the, and the Kishimaya, um, that you have uh, uh, their leader um, and their gods, they were thrown down. And there's a proud one, which is uh, an equivalent to Satan. And in the fairy mythos, you have the proud fairy and the proud fairies who uh, were banned from other planets and come to the earth and they create as opalescent ones they create the shining ones of the Tuatha Dutton and the fairy people from who the King Arthur tales come from in the fairy tale um, allegory and story yeah. uh, literature MO comes from uh, and so much other imagery but I would say that uh, the only thing I didn't hear in there was the word giant but if you oh if I got you, one for you uh, Gary oh, don't but, worry about yeah, it <laughs> no worries but if they believe they are the descendants of these gods that then they were either created like in a test tube or they were created through some sort of DNA manipulation or sexual copulation usually it's a sexual mm -hmm. copulation in the ancient mythologies those would have been giants and that would be the bloodlines of the first nations whether or not it's from the Aleutian Islands or you go to Florida or New Brunswick they all have similar stories and so you have a bloodline and a caste system that's the same so the bloodline is the bloodline of the chiefs you don't have you you, you see some elected chiefs now but they're always at odds with the bloodline chiefs who declare their divine right to rule just as all kings do around the earth from the original gods and as their divine descendants so mm -hmm. and then the uh the priest class um which would be you know shamans or witch doctors or medicine men however you want to describe it from uh, whichever culture of the first nations uh, they would be bloodline as well and would be developing this knowledge within the nation so it's always it's always in there you just have to understand it for what it is and the gods seem to be described in similar manners which is another coincidence mm -hmm. dang exactly but you know so I, I was looking into how it's usually focused around, like you said, sites, like sacred sites, like yes. mountains and yep. islands. And I came across this one island and the Gary Wayne bells started ringing in my head and I just had to read you this story. So um, along the same lines as the first story with the Aleutian Islands, there are not just a few that there's actually a bunch of islands that have this similar story and one of them that i came across is the isle of man and what a name that is you know <laughs> located in the irish sea and according to legend the isle of man was founded by a quote mystical race of celts called the tuatha de danan <laughs> <laughs> and yeah they were supposedly um, possessing magical powers and the legend goes on to say that they were banished from heaven for their sorcery and advanced knowledge and that they descended upon Ireland in a cloud of mist and it is said that at the end of their time which happens to coincide with the flood story that they vanished but left yep. their ghosts behind as disembodied spirits who will inhabit the island and can possess one's body putting you in a trance-like state with no awareness of space and time 
And this is the same island that for centuries there have been reported sightings of fiery wheels coming out of the sea with three spokes within them, spinning and rotating. And that sounds very similar to something else. So this is kind of a two-layer question. Your thoughts on the Isle of Man and the Tuatha Dé Danann, but secondly, does this not sound exactly like the wheels within wheels that Ezekiel saw? Yes, so the first two answers have very simple answers and then a fairly long explanation, so yes and yes. (laughs) (laughs) And now let's put some detail on it. So yeah, the Isle of Man is a uh, Tuatha Dodanan. Some people suggest maybe Pict or maybe it's a combination, but the Picts are just another tribe of the Tuatha Dodanan. So you know, mm-hmm. tomato, tomato doesn't really sort of matter. It's the same sort of roots and it's an island. And of course, the main island of the Irish Tuatha Dé Danann is Ireland. And of course, Great Britain, which the Isle of Man is from, uh, or kind of connected to as to Ireland, depending on how you want to connect them in. I mean, that's another large island. And so island like uh, Atlantis, an island continent. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh you know the tuatha de danan were blonde haired and uh, well, more red haired and hazel eyes and pale skin but their eastern versions where you see more of them that went up the danube river and into sweden and germany and russia and the ukraine they were blonde haired and blue eyes mostly but they're still mm-hmm. tuatha de danan both before and after the flood and they show up again after the flood um, and so you have uh, these these connections to this island and the skin and hair color that is identical to Atlantis, which is another island. And they were blonde hair, blue eyes, and red hair, and hazel eyes, and very pale skin, and giants and demigod offspring of Poseidon and Clyto, right? So you have the same story in the same period. And the kings and all of those stories they become disembodied spirits they become demon spirits right it's all it's all sort of identical and so you also have thule which is another island that became a little bit more famous and well-known. It's more of a Nordic ideology, and it became famous as in the Thule Society, a secret society that was one of the major societies to help uh, organize and bring about the Nazis to power, National Socialism, and the Mm -hmm. Aryans. And that's where, so Aryans are socialists. They're not right wing. They're extreme left wing, just as National Socialism was. And that their island before the flood uh, was called Thule and it's uh, kind of associated with uh, I'm trying to think of the one with the uh, in the Norse um, maybe it'll come to me but there's another island in the in the north Asgard uh, is the name right, of the island the, right? the mythical like yeah. in Thor and mm-hmm. yeah and that these blonde haired blue eyed pale skin Aryans from Thule and Asgard, um, where they're Germanic um, ancestors, and that when they were trying to create the new man, they were trying to create 
the new Tuatha Dé Danann, um, and that they were giants, and that they thought they could bioengineer through technology to recreate that demigod race to be the superior race. But in the meantime, they would just dwindle down that intermarriage to bring out those what they would call demigod sort of aspects. So you also have another large island and continent that, in polytheism, is called Mu, which would have been oh um, Lumeria. Yeah, off the coast of India, as we would understand it today, and it was either one of seven sort of major civilizations before the flood, or it was, as some of them would present it, the before. Civilization that started the seven civilizations, so that they become sort of the parent sort of mythos uh, mm -hmm. source to to that understanding. So, and you also have um, with the uh, the Atlantis sort of connection that there was ten demigod kings for the flood, part of that empire. So within that, they had. Uh, not only this island center in in somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, but they conquered as part of that dominion one of the ten kingdoms, Northern Africa. They were in Portugal and Spain. They were in South America, in sort of the Brazil and Colombia regions on the north. They were uh, into Central America, which is why you have so much connections back to Atlantis in in those civilizations. But they also occupied. Parts of England and Ireland is part of that, so that's where you start to make that connection back to the fairy, the fairy giants. And what's also sort of interesting as you look at this is we talk about them as both before the flood with the disembodied spirits, and then after the flood they show up again as disembodied spirits. So in their recollection, they were imprisoned into Tartarus. A prison in the other world for the rebellion against the gods, and then with the flood, and after the flood, they manage to escape into uh, Asia Minor, and they go down into the Middle East. They go up the Danube, and they migrate back to, to all of their sort of former uh, parts of their empire. Is probably the best way to explain that. And you know, they're also called the tribe of Danu. Uh, as mm -hmm. Anu, um, and so jointly with Diana as the fairy queen, queen of heaven, as the mother goddess for the Tuatha Dé Danann, and then Anu as the parent god, and you also have, or as the father god, and you also have them understood as the Dat Tanu after the flood, and probably even before the flood, because there would have been, they would have had the same name, and where that Dat Tanu name comes from is the Ugaritic text out of a city called Ugarit, um, just sort of inland from Tyr, and between Tyr and Mount Hermon, so it's in the north, and there was a tribe of Dat Tanu after the flood, assembly of, I mean, there was an assembly of Datanu, and there's these other Raphaim tribes, uh, and the Rapiu and the Rapiim are also listed in there, and their pantheon after the flood is Baal and Ashtaroth, as opposed to El as the parent god as it was before the flood. So you just get all of these sort of interconnections, and, they're, and when we're talking about the Tuatha Dé Danann, as we've just sort of talked about, um, they cross so many different cultures. It's absolutely mm -hmm. astounding, it's both astounding. before and after the flood. Yes, it's crazy. And so let's say that their disembodied spirits stuck around right on the Isle of Man. 
Yep. Do you think that that has anything to do with like the wheels within the wheels that they keep oh, seeing? Oh, right. That like, was the second question. Yeah. Like, do, so, do you think that it's maybe still lingering? Like, yeah. like what Ezekiel saw? This is just yep. fallen angel technology. Yep. yep. Yeah, um, it is. And when we talk about, um, uh, geez, I, I, you had just mentioned there that I also wanted to, to, to mention, but maybe I'll, I'll remember it when it comes back. So <laughs> as I continue to talk, so with the wheels within the wheels, you have um, a concept within polytheism that is identical to the description described in the Psalms in Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10, where you have the chariot of God. And in the book of the Psalms, it's the Trubim who pulls this chariot. And you have Trubim depicted in Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10. And in the wheel, you have some other Trubim-like beings in Ezekiel 1, 3, and 10. And uh, these uh, have uh, four faces like the cherubim, but one of the faces is a cherub. So it's a little bit different. And not one of the faces would be what these angels are called, which would be Ophan or Ophanium. And those wheels means in Hebrew with the beings as opposed to the wheel on the outside that are going round and round. That comes from the Hebrew word Gilgal. Um, but with the... Uh, Trubim-like beings, that comes from the Hebrew word ofan. They both mean wheel. But this is referring to the wheel angels. And you put the I am plural on there, you get ofanim. That's that fourth group of watchers that are talked about in the book of Enoch. So we do get sort of support for the ofanim uh, through the Hebrew language for the book of Enoch. So this is like described as the chariot of God, right? Um, in the vision. Well, they have that in polytheism. They're just pulled by either horses or unicorn horses, right? So, so it's just the chariot, like like the book uh, Chariots of the Gods, yeah, or yeah. And they're trying to link it to like extraterrestrials yeah. and all this, blah blah blah. But what's interesting is is that the horses, whether it's the the uh, the chariot drawn by. I got somebody sending me a whole bunch of texts and I can't shut that one off. <laughs> um, You're a busy man. <laughs> um, the uh, the horses uh, and the unicorns are understood in polytheism. And when, when I'm talking about these, the best depiction of these chariots of the gods comes in um, Greek mythology, but it's in other mythology as well. So the uh, chariot that Zeus rides or the chariot that Apollo rides and there's other gods as well that's where these descriptions I pull from so these beings that are pulling the the chariots as they understand it in its angelic sense or its god sense are godlike beings as well and that the horn is this this channel to uh, unlimited knowledge that comes through the throne um for that they dispense to the people like all civilization is started by gods and polytheism so these are um angelic beings only it's an allegory so it's an allegory for cherubim uh, in polytheism so what they have is the counterfeit 
throne of gods because in the pantheons they have a throne room that's a counterfeit as well so they have watcher mm. gods they have the four groups and we have the psalms uh psalm 82 which is the council of the gods uh, where you have these 70 uh gods as deuteronomy 32 tells us that are ruling over the nations but they all have throne rooms for each of those nations as well and then as they do branch nations through their visible ones their divine descendants they would set up throne rooms with those kingdoms that would be you know answering sort of up the hierarchy to certain gods that answer up the hierarchy to other gods as you get through that sort of army so it's uh, interesting that uh, we have that wheels within wheels and that these are sort of usurped as an allegory because you can't have flying chariots according to the ancient alien mythos or, or seculars uh, and they they change that into you know flying saucers or ships they because do. they say that people were so silly that they that they uh, could couldn't describe properly that's exactly what they, what saw. they say but they all described yeah. them the same way so they're all mm -hmm. silly with the same sort of hallucination so <laughs> I think <laughs> that's a really good point. It's like, oh, uh, five, six, seven, eight. How many people does it take describing something in the same way before it's not a hallucination anymore? <laughs> well, then they just call it a mass hallucination, right? So, oh, right. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> because everybody has the same delusion, right? It's just. <laughs> yeah. We're all part of the same nightmare, I guess, Gary. Yeah. Now. So, yeah, it's an, it's so it's interesting on on all of that that you would have those sort of simil similarities. So, um, so do I think that the fallen angels have some sort of technology that works like that? Do I think they have other vehicles? I do, um, but they certainly have that as well because that represents sort of the pinnacle of their hierarchies. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's interesting that you can look in multiple different places and find such similar stories. And it doesn't even have to be. As a Christian, I think that it all goes back to the same source. But this is just their way of telling the same stories. Mm -hmm. And it's just been confused over time. And yep. another island... You're not even going to believe this, and maybe you've already researched it, but the next on the list is actually the Solomon Islands. And again, the name, very telling. Yes. <laughs> the Solomon Islands, and they're about 800 miles east of Papua New Guinea. And these are the same islands where over 30,000 men would be brutally slaughtered and or sacrificed during what became known as the Battle of Guadalcanal, later codenamed Operation Watchtower by the um, American forces. But it was a military campaign fought between August 1942 and February 1943 during World War II. But Guadalcanal is infamous for something else the countless local legends of the giants giants living among people and as far back as there were people on the island they've talked about the giants and how that they would reproduce with human women that they're living underground in subterranean tunnels 
and that it's kind of like an underground city, kind of like Darren Kuyu in Turkey. And the locals actually insist that they are not stories at all, but they're extremely real. And of course, along with this, they have UFO activity and they even see these things called the Adaro, which are half man, half fish beings who inhabit the sea. And they have something called the Chua Chua, which also can shape shift. I guess it's kind of like a Bigfoot. But to me, that that Adaro, it sounds like a seraphim type of being. And your thoughts, scary on the Solomon Islands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's again one of those lesser known high level activity areas of significant importance, not only to the alien uh, phenomena and mythos and, and history, um, but to a significant area, as you mentioned, for giants, a significant area for um, prehistory, most of it lost, is only on sort mm -hmm. of oral, oral traditions and locations where giants could survive for long periods of time after the flood um, because people just it took a long time for people to get there australia has similar kinds of legends with similar kinds of again mm -hmm. with all, all all the sort of legends are, are quite similar but when you start getting into the underground city aspect then it starts to go to kind of another level of understanding um which isn't as prevalent in other uh, mythologies and histories around the world but it's sort of in the subtext it's sort of there in the under in in the understanding so this idea that uh there's these underground cities is is getting to be more well known that that's an actual fact so petra for example most of it's underground we only see but most of it was built underground you've got underground cities all over the world you have cities that are underneath the oceans that were destroyed um, yes very and, true and and one wonders what you would find in some of those as as well um so this is uh, an understanding that a lot of people have is that you know, giants were able to survive the flood in these underground cities. And I'm not convinced that that's actually quite accurate. I think that you still have this oxygen issue if you've got a flood over right. top of you. I was going to say, wouldn't it just days. fill up, yeah. you know? <laughs> but again, you have to link it in with the larger sort of narrative. It's all they always have this advanced knowledge. They have this mystical religion and they have these gods that go back and forth and the giants were able to go back and forth between dimensions as well so reference that back to the ugaritic text and their rapium and the rapium which is the root word for raphaim after the flood these are the ones that can travel into uh, uh, hades uh, where their gods are and they do it both when they are alive at certain times of year during certain festivals and when you have a king die so that they can guide that king to what, what they would call their heaven and he's not forced to wander the earth or he doesn't go to to the abyss prison so you have this this understanding that these these giants and they also they're called healers as well in the ugaritic text so you healers. look at that healers yes and they could not only heal themselves but they could heal 
others. So when you look at the word Raphaim, that's in the Hebrew concordance by Strong's, it's 7497 is its number, and it means a tribe of giants. 7496, which is interconnected with 7497, and I'll explain that in just a second, is the word for spirits, disembodied spirits, uh, shades. Um, So... And both of those words, 7496, 7497, Rafa, is part of the root word Rafa 7495, which means to heal or medicine. So that if you put that together, well, let's say with Raphael, that would mean healer of God or God heals, oh, right? yes, like the right? angel, yes. Like the angel, yeah. And Baal had a name like Raphael as well, as one of his alternate names. And I talk about this in, in my new book. And so that's where it's thought that the Semitic word RPM for Raphaim uh, originates with, just as the Ugaritic text was a Semitic language that it was written in. And so you get this interesting sort of connection there that these giants were called travelers that went back and forth. So biblically, you're going to people say, well, I've heard some people talk about travelers, and that usually comes up from Ezekiel 39 in the Gog and Magog war, where these travelers show up, and that goes back to the Hebrew word abar, meaning to cross over, and it's associated, like in the book of Job and elsewhere, with the dead, with the Raphaim, they're the mm-hmm. dead spirits, right? Yes. Um, so you have this sort of connection of these underground cities um, that are said to be below the earth, and some of them are, but they're also talking about going into another dimension in the earth. So yes, they could have had underground cities for protection or whatever, but one presumes if they were to survive, they would have probably gone into another dimension. Oh my gosh. Wow. So uh, this is kind of like, and I don't know if you watch this, but the new Black Panther movie, the new Black Panther Marvel movie is so Mm -hmm. full of these type of references where you have to go into a little tunnel underwater and it leads this cavernous and it opens up into an Atlantis type of situation. And even the Disney movie Atlantis, which is a cartoon, essentially is saying the same thing that you have to go in the ocean into a tunnel and it pops you up in kind of like this oasis type of area which is outside of space and time as we would know it they don't age and they're you know so it's 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 the where peter pan goes yes exactly yes and peter pan's an allegory for for the pan god right and these demons i swear they always try to show us these the stories to make the demons actually look like the good guys yep they do Mm -hmm. well in their and in their belief system not only do you have sort of the the chief sort of being of their pantheon that would be equal as they would call it to the god of the bible who they would call evil that's the classic macro dualism but within Mm -hmm. their whole belief system at the micro level they have like black magic and white magic they have good nephilim they have bad nephilim they have you know good witches they have evil witches it is a constant throughout their uh pantheon and their belief system and some of them may have 
better intentions for humans than others, but ultimately they all have the same goal. They just have a different route to that destiny mm -hmm. that they're trying to achieve. And they all worship a pantheon of gods and they're all anti-human. It's just to <laughs> what degree? Yes. Yeah. Now, okay. So while I was doing my research, I didn't take too many notes on this, but I found uh, the Sandy Island in high brazil and both of these islands are said to like appear and then disappear and then you find them but then you go back and you can't find them yeah. do you think that they're interdimensional in some way yeah I, I i think so i think um again you could have um in theory you could have an island that either you could make sort of camouflage to not be there um you know it's not detectable or like a cloaked they, island yeah you could have that Ooh. or you could have something on a higher level of technology where you have the ability to to make it vibrate into a different wavelength and into mm. another dimension right just as so those islands would be if either one of they would have to have such highly advanced technology uh that only the gods would have only the fallen angels uh to be able to do that and so or had inherited that knowledge from the fallen angels mm -hmm. to to be able to do that so i think there's a there's a possibility to that because i think the technology and i, I don't know whether we mentioned it in past shows or not i think the technology that was before the flood was greater than what we have today and absolutely just and we're just catching up to that and the reason for it what being more advanced than we have today is because they had the angelic technology that was mm -hmm. being supplied to them mm -hmm. and uh, so when you hear see all of this sort of science fiction of atlantis with all the great things that it could do you know including spaceships that's not out of the realm of possibility in terms of yeah. how advanced that knowledge was i mean we can't do the things that they were doing back then even yet we're getting close but we're not there yet does it mean that it's aliens from mars though no i think it's from a different dimension i think it's part exactly. of that whole fallen sort of hierarchy so you have a hierarchy Same. of yeah within within the angelic realm right um so you have different orders and ranks you've got different angels we talked about the watchers they also include the archangels i may not have mentioned them or the seraphim that you were that we were talking about oh and and darrow as we were talking earlier um that is like an indian god typically associated not more as, as much with serpents but more with apes and monkeys and things like that so more associated mm -hmm. with bigfoot where the nagas in that pantheon would be um serpent type of gods um so um i'm not sure where i was before i went down that rabbit hole i kind of lost myself <laughs> but uh, well i actually have a follow-up question to the yep. technology question because if you look like you were saying in india especially even in japan and some other cultures you see that a lot of times during war that they're gifted from the gods these really intricate weapons i guess yeah. for lack of a better term they're yeah. described as weapons but they sound like technology yes and they you are technology. wonder okay yeah 
Yeah, Where, and that, who is it so, that's giving them these weapons? And that was a great segue to jog my memory too, because I was kind of <laughs> leading in there and not quite at the weapon part, but it, but through that sort of hierarchy, you get to the weapons, and so you have other angelic orders like uh, Excusia, Dunamis, uh, names like that, Arche, that are part of the angelic order. Um, a part of the Saba, the army. It's a, it's a uh, host of heaven. It's an army of angels, mm -hmm. both counterfeit and loyal. But below that hierarchy of the angels that the gods rule over are the visible ones. And there are their sort of physical offsprings and creation. So you would place the Raphaim and the Nephilim right below there as their, as, their, as their divine representatives. But then you get into things like the little people and the elementals. And the elementals has four groups of people. Uh, the one that would be the fourth that I didn't write about in the first book are, is called the salamanders. And they are taller than humans. And these are ones that are sighted in a lot of these tunnels and underground cities. These are these uh, serpentine lizard beings that they're referring to. So the salamander people. Yeah. And I wonder whether or not that's a separate creation of the lizard people, or is that somehow that the, the fallen angels were able to save some of the Nahash, some of the serpents that were there in the time of Adam and Eve, and one deceived Eve to eat from and, and Adam to eat from the tree of good and evil, and that not all of them were you know lost their arms and lost their intelligence lost their voice and have to crawl on the ground but these were walking talk and they were taller than humans so wonder whether or not it's that or some other form or maybe there's some serpentine nephilim that are down there as well with them but these ones don't seem to be as big as the uh, as as the giants were so they're taller than humans but not giant like and the other four, three groups of the elementals are like the, the fairy people, right? So you have the good looking ones and, you know, in Peter Pan, as we've talked about, you have Tinkerbell that would represent one of those. Mm -hmm. um, certainly uh, uh, Peter Pan would be one of those little people, even though he's also an allegory for, for the Pan God or Azazel. And then you have the uh, mischievous ones, which are like leprechauns and pixies and things like that they're in and these are in all continents all around the world and probably on antarctica once we figure out what's under the ice there uh, so i'll just i'll just Fairies sort of draft them in but with, yeah. yeah and then you have the ugly little people so when you're into the alien mythos and you you talk about these grays who kidnap people come through flying machines a lot of them through the water portals and things like that you have these grays in uh, the fairy culture uh, and they're called grays uh, and they describe exactly like the gray aliens they have flying machines they come through portals uh, fairy domens as they're called fairy shays they kidnap people they do sexual experimentation on them in my first book I put a couple examples of those fairy abductions and they're it's been with us all throughout history with the, the the mythos of this they're identical to the gray alien abduction descriptions and if you didn't know i was talking about gray fairies you would think it was gray a gray alien account just that it happens in the 1600s or whenever i'm taking the account from 
And then there's other ones. So like in Lord of the Rings, for example, that Tolkien draws on the antediluvian age and this hierarchy and describes some of these people. So like the noble, um, the noble elven, uh, and they're called elves in uh, Lord of the Rings. They're tall or like taller than even the humans. So these are an allegory for the noble Celt, which is the Tuatha Dé Danann. They don't make them full giants, but they make them taller than the dark elves, which would be part of the ugly ones. And uh, and they're described as Tuatha Dé Danann as you look at them in there. So if you somebody were to Google Riders of the Shea, S-I-D-H-E. Shea can mean portal, it's the Shea people, it's pronounced Shea as opposed to the D sound in there. And uh, it's called Riders of the Shea. And you see that identical depiction. And this is the Tuatha Dé Danann, who also have this, they're riding these white horses and they have these gold uh, caps on their horses with a gold single horn to match a unicorn, just as the Nephilim used to ride the unicorn into battle before the flood. Um, so anyways, I digress though. So the, the other ones are uh, in there that are important would be the dwarves and the ugly ones. And the dwarves live in the earth and in mountains, similar to the hobbits, but with a specific role. All of the little people have a specific role or job in this hierarchy. So in Lord of the Rings, you see them in these mountains making these weapons. Their job, yeah. polytheism, was to make weapons for the gods. Now, they wouldn't do that for the invisible ones, the true gods. They would make those weapons for the demigods with the technology supplied from the gods so that Thor could have his magic hammer, for example, or, um, or any of these other magic weapons. They would forge those weapons for them as part of that history and they put that in so many of their um, stories that hold all of their religion their genealogies and history within it yeah you know they they always include that dwarves are great metallurgists yeah and that they love gold and they're always looking for gold yep and you do see that in lord of the rings as well as many other yep. um like Snow White, they're in the mines and they're looking in there. So, of course, what a, what a great that. allegory. Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So Snow <laughs> right. White is this fairy queen, Tuatha Danann queen, mm -hmm. and she's pale haired. This, in this case, she's dark haired. So more like the ones that come out of Sumeria, like a, a Gilgamesh, for example. Um, mm. And uh, these Seven Dwarves, uh, they don't have tool making, but they're 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 kind of yeah, like they have their little picks and they're trying to get the jewels in the yeah. mine and yeah they're doing doing it in sort of a different softer sort of way because walt disney who was a rosicrucian and freemason absolutely um, he was perpetuating um their history i mean he he was doing the typical things that they do in literature throughout the ages to keep their history alive and and so that people would sort of understand it. And of course, he was focused on the kids. So, bastard. Sorry, Gary. <laughs> he is, though. <laughs> Let's leave the kids out of it, Disney. But it's all part of the brainwashing. Yeah. You got to get them while they're young and yep. get them obsessed with it. Exactly. And... Yeah. 
But something that came up just recently, I spoke to someone and they were trying to explain to me the keys of Solomon and that Solomon was the most powerful king in the Bible and that this is some type of a magic thing that goes along with scripture. And I, of (laughs) course, like to keep it very simple. I told them... I probably am not going to be interested in this, but, you know, I'll hear you out, whatever. Yep. But since I have your ear, Gary, do you know anything about these keys of Solomon? Like, what is this? Yeah. So Solomon is drafted by Polytheus because he was such a wise and powerful king in the bloodline of the Davidic bloodline and things like that. And so he's the one who goes to uh, King Hiram of Tyr to get this knowledge to build the first temple. And King Hiram also supplies a lot of the building materials. And this is the ancient building knowledge of the ancients from the Dionysian builders uh, that was pre-flood. And so it was used to build all of the great temples and palaces around the early uh, post-Diluvian world. So this is the knowledge that he's uh, attaching into it. And they're saying at that time, they converted him over to be a black magician or a polytheist. And that he, along with the wisdom he had already received from God and that, you know, rose to quite a high level. So he's a very important figure in Gnosticism. They just don't use scripture for that. They use scripture as the basis for him and then sort of usurp him into it. So... You know, place in books like the Quran, for example, he's said to have been able to control demons to build. Yeah, they, the I, that's what this person told me. They were trying to explain to me the keys of Solomon. They said, "Well, Solomon could control angels and demons," and I was well, the, really curious what your yeah. thoughts on that. So were. we don't get that biblically. So anything that sort of parts with scripture i may look at it as interesting but i don't look at it as as, as accurate mm-hmm. so um the quran you know maybe they they maybe they do have some knowledge that he was able to control demons but he wouldn't be able to control angels angels right? yeah right but the quran doesn't say he could control angels that's another sort of layer on top of it from another source so he is uh he and he became like a Masonic high degree adept with the building and everything, right? And the whole tradition that sort of goes with that. So, but I understand they draft all of the major patriarchs and try and convert them into polytheism because they think monotheism went rogue from polytheism and it needs to come home to its home religion. That's what they're planning for the end time. So they'll use all of this in the end time and that they'll use, you know, things like in scripture that he had the wisdom of Egypt, Heliopolis, Mm. right? The wisdom that Moses brought back as a polytheist, they'll say. So they do things like that. They play on things, but you can't you can't argue that the Bible that says they didn't have the wisdom of Egypt because it says that because he was so wise. But what else they add on to that isn't in the Bible. It's just they've layered mm-hmm. their belief system on that. Now, the keys is that sort of allegory again that they raise him up to such a high level and almost like a Jesus status, but in polytheist understanding that would just be a wise teacher or a prophet, not deity status right but jesus um is also 
drafted by them as that wise teacher. Um, and that in the Bible, it says Jesus had the keys to heaven in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so these are the keys that they're referring to that is available to all high-level adepts in, in mysticism. And that these keys to heaven would be keys to Hades, keys to the abyss, keys to uh, even... Yeah, is what they're actually referring to, right? So it's referring to a counterfeit technology or... Um, you know, accounting uh, to sort of raise up their own sort of mythos and and reputations. So I don't want those keys. Yeah. So you want to be careful with how polytheism seduces monotheists. Um, mm. And if you're a polytheist and that's what you believe, that's fine. I'm, you know, you can believe what, whatever you want to believe and all the power to you. But as a monotheist, you need to be careful of this. Um, yeah. Otherwise, you're actually going to become a polytheist. So make sure you know what you're choosing when you when you go down some of these lines. So that's why I have a kind of this sort of hard line. If it's not in the Bible, uh, it has to be very directionally with the Bible, and it can't have those sort of markers of, you know, mysticism, which obviously mm -hmm. this has. So um, I don't I don't buy into the fact that that Solomon uh, had that kind of power. If he did, he certainly wouldn't have exercised it in a way because we would have gotten that recorded in the Bible. That is absolutely a, yeah. In any time, there's a great thing that one of the patriarchs or one of the prophets did because of the power that you know through him by the Holy Spirit. That would that's was accounted for. We don't get this. And we don't even get it in a lot of the writings of the uh, of the lost hag hagiography uh, writings uh, that used to be part of the uh, the Jewish scrolls. Um, so this is just sort of adding on to scripture that comes out of polytheism as they drafted him into their belief system. Yeah, and I call me crazy, Gary, but the older I get. The more I realize, the simpler you keep it, the easier everything is. Exactly. If it's not in the Bible, then it's some horse shit. And I'm sorry <laughs> to swear. You know, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little bit. That is as simple as it is, Gary. Yep. If it's yep. not in the Bible, you don't yep. need to be dabbling into it. Yeah, and, and to a certain degree, though, I would also say that knowledge is neither good or evil. It's how it's used. Yeah. And that's what you really have to be aware of. And we're told to be careful of the wisdom of the world. Because mm -hmm. unless it recognizes God and yeah. recognizes it to honor God, this is the wisdom of the fallen angels. This is the mm -hmm. technology that's developed from that wisdom or knowledge. And it's guided, you know, the seven sacred sciences that I've talked, I probably have talked about in the past on your show, uh, which merge with the, the fallen angel technology, you know, changed the world that we had an apocalypse. And the first three sciences form the makeup of something they call in polytheism. And it would be very well understood in the mystical degrees in university that they teach. Um, philosophy is comes mm -hmm. from the first three sciences and that word philosophy in greek means the love of sophia who is the goddess of wisdom so 
Oh my gosh, wow. <laughs> and people oh don't realize gosh. that they're swimming in polytheism. And we have to we have to understand what they're talking about. And so you know, Gnosticism created theosophy that they had created for the end time religion, which would be harmonious with science, as opposed to Christianity isn't always harmonious with science because it wasn't designed to be. It's designed mm -hmm. to lead people away from God. It's designed, mm -hmm. the seven sciences, to, to degrade God, to not give God credit for anything and to honor their pantheon of gods. And it does that. So it's not going to be congruent all the time with... Uh, it's going to have a biases from polytheism as opposed to the monotheist sort of biases and slant. So if we have to understand that as Christians. And Gnosticism created theosophy, as I said, for this universal end-time religion where it's going to merge back into this one sort of belief system. And that word theosophy is the theology or the god of Sophia, however you want to <laughs> translate that. Oh my that. god. They just, and, they encode everything. So that's why you have all of their gods, names, and things that run throughout science, because that's who they're honoring. Mm-hmm. And we're just marinated in it. Yeah. Marinated. That's every, so, everywhere. What do you think? I know we've touched on some islands, and I don't want to take up too, too, too much of your time, Gary, but I have to ask you, mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on the mound builder? sites like serpent mound and some of these other mounds yeah very very interesting so it has similar technology that would go in it we just don't sort of recognize it until you get into the sort of the details of it so one of the interesting things is, is this is made from earthenworks and it's ancient it's way older than what uh, our current archaeologists want to uh, date it to, but then they underdate the pyramids and everything else. So we shouldn't be surprised about that. But even at the age that they would use, it doesn't really sort of erode away. It's got this long lasting ability. There's a technology mm -hmm. that went into it that is just shown in it. And of course, it's got that standard sort of serpent design, which is a standard imagery in ancientology, whether it's the serpent gods or the serpent kings, as they were described as. And uh, that is recognizing the seraphim angel, the sixth wing uh, serpent faced angel mm -hmm. watcher that is a dragon it's a heavenly dragon so whether or not you're talking about a serpent creator god or a dragon creator god you're talking about the same being so quetzalcoatl is a feathered serpent god right the yeah. dragon creator gods out of uh, china it's the same all over the world enki was a serpent uh, mm -hmm. tiamat was a serpent it's, it's everywhere so they're honoring those serpentine gods because it Typically, it was the seraphims that provided the government and the religion. Other angels mm -hmm. in the orders provided other things. Um, typically, Trubim were more supplying warrior classes, um, you know, like the lion men of Moab and creatures like that. But that's a, that's a different rabbit hole. Back to the serpent mounds. Um, <laughs> so these the serpent mounds, um, they uh, are aligned with astronomical and um, phenomena, I mean, uh, constellations, things like that. So you have this sacred constellation and sacred geometry that all goes into it, just like the pyramids do. Um, so you have these ancient 
uh, sites that all align up to the same constellations all around the world and you have the same constant um, imagery that is all around the world and that this seems to be part of the Aztec culture or pre-Aztec culture. And it's not clear now as they dig deeper into it, did the original Kishamaya, who are kind of the root to the Aztec people, and then it was originally thought that they might they migrated up north because they built similar sort of sites, right? Mm-hmm. Now they're wondering whether or not that these sites that they're finding in, in the Ameri- in North America might be older than the ones in South America and Central America. I'm, so. I'm starting to think that, like in Louisiana, some yeah. of these mound builder sites and Serpent Mound in Ohio, I'm starting to think that they're much, much, much older than they're given credit for. Yeah. But like and, the pyramid and, and, of uh, Cholula is yeah. so much older, it predates oh, it the Aztecs for sure. It does. And they're, and the people, whether it's in the First Nations of uh, America or it's in the First Nations of Central and South America, they all say that they didn't build any of these sites. Right! They right. inherited them. I mean, why we wouldn't believe them, I don't know. But you think if they were able to achieve that type of technology, they would be proud of it. They'd have records of it. They'd want to take credit for it. Yeah. And what's also yeah. interesting is is that they all have stories as, as a post-Diluvian peoples inheriting these sites uh, were re-cultured by the local gods. So Quetzalcoatl is is a god that was a god of the people that helped that migrated to north and north and south america from an island continent after a great flood so (laughs) you get that startup and then the hopi and other tribes they say that their descendants were called the white snake clan from an island in the atlantic ocean i mean you just you just it just oh goes, God. yeah, you just can't make this stuff up. And there's such a strong following in First Nation uh, oral history of giants, little people, uh, and these serpentine gods. It's just unbelievable, uh, the consistency to it. And same with the sites all around the world. Um, people have said they never built them. And I think we see a lot of sites where we know humans built it because it's so defective that they couldn't you know like like the <laughs> the more recent pyramids they got worse at building pyramids somehow some way oh yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah. oh <laughs> we were gosh. able to do it to perfection but we forgot <laughs> <laughs> we got actually worse think about it. what they say when they do oh, these no. things i don't know oh my gosh that's so true and we couldn't today replicate a lot of these sites. And if you look at stories of the pyramids, yep. they say that they were sung together, that they had yeah. some type of levitation. Yeah. And it, it, there was a technology there. But another From thing Machu that Picchu. I get asked about, <laughs> mm-hmm, or or even um, there was another one like Zechacalo or something mm-hmm. like that. And then Nan Madal is another yep. megalithic structure oh, yeah. I get asked in the about southeast, and, yeah, southeast Asia. Yep, yeah. Kind of like Island of Pompeii yep. type of area. And um, something else that I get asked about a lot, and you would be surprised how often this happens, is 
people ask me if I have any thoughts on the Ark of the Covenant or where I think it is or what I think it is, if it's in Africa or where it is. So, Gary, what are your thoughts on the Ark of the Covenant? Is it technology? Oh, it's a, there's a technology there. There's no doubt about it. So in the Bible, um, it had the power to destroy armies. And if you didn't, weren't permitted to look upon it, um, mm -hmm. and you weren't, um, you would die from it. And uh, it was also partly a communication device. And was in the Holy of Holies in, you mm -hmm. know, first in the tents uh, and then in the city of Jerusalem after David took Jerusalem and Solomon built the temple. And the Levite priests, they had nine jewels on their vests and they had the Urim and Thurim and for different things they would receive messages to, to what they were asking. So it's a communication thing as well. Um, so it disappears in the time of Jeremiah and it's not found and in the King James Apocrypha there's a passage in there where he takes it and hides it at the foot of the mountain uh, until the end time and in the book of Revelation we actually see it in in heaven at that time and one expects when Jesus comes it will be you know part of the, the, the new temple in, in Jerusalem but we also have all of these other stories, whether or not it is, you know, Templar stories that they found it and they've got it, or it's down in Ethiopia and these fantastic uh, churches below the earth and yeah. these guardians and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, we get instructions in the Bible how to build the Ark of the Covenant. Something about the, the cherubim on, yeah. on the sides. And yeah. Yeah. So I think there was counterfeit ones that were built. So oh. I expect, Dang. yeah, because there's the instructions are there to do it. And mm. so I think those were built and they could be very old, but I don't think they're the original ones. And certainly the King of Babylon didn't take it back. There's no record that he had it. So I think there's a lot of legitimacy that the Israelites hid it. And I don't think it's been found, but the, as I say, the only place biblically we see it again is in the book of Revelation in, in, in heaven. So I think it may be hidden well, and it may at that time be set back up there as part of that vision, ready to come down for, for Jesus' reign. But we have to understand that polytheists counterfeit everything. Mm -hmm. So they would build arcs and they would build the mythos in preparation and create an age for it and i would expect antichrist wannabes as we get towards the end of the fig tree generation are going to be utilizing this as part of their sort of pedigree and authority and right to rule mm -hmm. and it's going to be very believable and one presumes that they're going to have some angelic technology at that time to be able to make this thing even work to a certain degree. Wow, yeah. Or even the chariot. Something, yeah. a big show, a display of power. Yeah. You know, certainly wow. the false prophet in support of uh, Antichrist is going to bring fire down from the heavens. So what else will they be able to do? 
this just popped up into my mind randomly, but I was talking to my sister the other day and I wanted to ask you what you think the significance is in the Bible when it says after Jesus was crucified, the veil was torn. Yeah. What does that mean to you? To me, that would be a reference within the Holy of Holies mm -hmm. of, of the curtains that would be um, protecting the Ark of the Covenant and other things that were in there. I think that's what it was. Also, you know, at the time Jesus was uh, Jesus was uh, crucified and died, you had um, many of the saints come out of their their graves, whether or not that mm -hmm. was part of the first fruits and and the, they went to heaven or they went back to sleep, we don't know. Um, but there was a definite sign to the people of Judea that you have officially rejected your Messiah, you have violated the Holy Covenant, um, and you've had many warnings, including losing the Northern Kingdom and including uh, of being sent to Babylon for the southern kingdom, but now you're going to be dispersed. You'll be visible unlike the lost tribes, but you're going to be suffering the curses of the covenant because that's mm. the representative of the holy covenant of the things that are in the holy of holies, the items, and that you're going to be dispersed amongst um, the races of the earth and persecuted until the end time when I will remember you and I will forgive you and bring both Israel and Judah back into the covenant. But you're going to go through the time of Jacob's trouble and you're going to have to recognize your Messiah before all of this happens. Um, so that should have been a significant message to them, but they were seemingly so... And it's, and it's a really good lesson for Christians is that you don't uh, preconceive too much with uh, concluded ideas about how prophecy is going to be fulfilled because they had all of the prophets. They had their people had lived through all the miracles and everything. And they had the understanding of how the Messiah would come back, but they decided it was all at once, even though the Old Testament prophecies don't say that. And they rejected their Messiah because they felt they had a higher knowledge than they mm -hmm. actually did. And Christians do the same thing with prophecy. So if you don't think Christians can get caught into preconceived conclusions, uh, I would say learn a lesson from history that nothing is new under the sun. Learn a lesson from the people of Judah who missed their Messiah because of those same types of um, preconceived conclusions. And so one of the things that you would have to do if you were the people of Judea is you would have to ignore inconvenient passages to arrive at their conclusion. That mm -hmm. happens in end time prophecy all of the time. Anybody who is teaching you a chronology and wants to leave out all the inconvenient passages, that's a red flag. Anybody who puts prophecy in for end time prophecy, um, but what Jesus said around what the prophet said is leading you astray. 
Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. He is the word of God. You put everything around what he said and in his chronology. Anybody who tries to reinvent what Jesus said and the chronology that he provides, that should be a red flag. Um, mm -hmm. As you said, it's simple. It, it was, is. This is not this is not rocket science and that <laughs> it's not the mysteries it's not polytheist religion he provided a chronology that the disciples had asked for and he says and then this happens and then then this happens and he uses the abomination as the midpoint marker and he references the book of daniel and that word then is the greek word tote and it means exactly that it's not an inserted word he is presenting a chronological order and he provides three overarching signs you have to understand the, the beginning of the sorrows for the fig tree generation, which is the other sign, and it's going to be like the days of Noah. All of that mm -hmm. is part of everything that's happening is nothing in, is new under the sun and just fit every other piece of prophecy into there, including Revelation. Everything fits. And the only thing they have to do with Revelation is understand that from about Revelation 6 to 14, uh, with the beginning of the seal openings and then uh, with the finishing of the trumpets, that's the first three and a half years. And after that, at the midpoint, after the last of the first fruits, uh, part of the resurrection sequence, are in heaven. Those are the 144,000. Then you get a summary of the last three and a half years, and then you get the details for the last three and a half years after that. And that summary is in the exact order of those major events for the end time and the wrath of god is a year of the lord not tribulation don't confuse tribulation and and uh wrath uh, i don't have time to go through everything on prophecy but <laughs> right. my, point, my point is is there's a common theme of ignoring passages or bending um uh scripture like a pretzel to your point of view to your preconceived conclusion and you should not have a preconceived conclusion you should just it when you put it around what jesus said all the contradictions go away mm -hmm. i think that's where people say let go and let god <laughs> it's not yeah. up to us to figure it out we just have to know that it's simple and well, that everything is, we need to know has been stated already in the bible well, yeah, but we do need to know. I mean, our faith is all that it takes. But Jesus was very, very clear in his oration that even the elect will be deceived if that were possible. And as he lays it out, even the elect will be deceived. Mm -hmm. So we have to learn about this. And the adversarial forces are going to use our scripture against us to delude us. And so the only way you can get people to follow even the elect, the Antichrist, when he comes, is to use our scripture against us. And they will. Mm -hmm. So I think we need to take a little time to try and learn it. I mean, but keep your faith. And if it doesn't happen the way that you want, you still keep your faith, right? Because... Right. As you mentioned, you know, prophecy always happens in ways that people don't really perceive how it's going to happen. So we we can directionally understand things so that we can have a better understanding. But um, we could get things we could get things wrong. So we don't want to get too specific. But anything that Jesus said, mm -hmm. that's the order.
And that yes. happens in the last seven years. So absolutely. I couldn't have said it more perfectly, Gary. And I am on pins and needles for the new book to come out. I just cannot wait. And you crushed it last time. You came back, you crushed it again. <laughs> And for those who aren't familiar with your work, let's say this is the first time they've ever heard you. Can you tell them where to get the Genesis 6 conspiracy? So the best and fastest and easiest way to get my book is through my website. And that is the Genesis 6 conspiracy.com. That's Genesis 6 with the number 6 conspiracy.com. And on that website, you can get a signed copy if 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 you like. Um, and if you're in Canada, there's a page for Canada. If you're in the U.S., there's a page for the U.S. And if you're anywhere else in the world, there's an overseas page. So that's how you can get a signed copy. Go to the Buy Now page and go to the right page. Whether it's on the front of the website or on the Buy page, you're also going to have links there that will take you over to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, BarnesandNoble.com, and to the Kindle version. So if you want a digital version, you can link over there. So those that's the fastest way to get a hold of a hold of the book if you wanted to support your local bookstore. Uh, it's distributed by bookmasters so they can order it in for you. And uh, I always like to have people support the local bookstore wherever possible, but sometimes it's not always possible. And if you like some of the things that I was talking about, and you wanted to know a little bit more about my book, because we're talking about a lot of things that aren't sort of in the standard sort of dogma as you're taught in churches today, because they don't teach prehistory and they don't teach uh, prophecy. It's, it's funny why we have a system set up where you don't provide the whole context of the Bible, but that's <laughs> probably preparation for the deceptions that are coming. Mm -hmm. um, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. And so you'll get a good feel for the book. Even I think if you just go through the table of contents, it's going to catch your attention. And uh, my new book will be marketed off the same website as well. Uh, the book is also available on most online bookstores. And if you wanted to get a hold of me and get a little bit more information, uh, I do have a lot of documents. I supply no charge. So if you wanted one on the elementals that I talked about, for example, today, you can go to the media page where it says contact Gary Wayne for an interview. That's my uh, email um, contact. So that'll come right through to me or just go to Genesis six conspiracy at gmail.com. Plug that in Genesis six conspiracy at gmail.com. And the email will come through to me and it may take me, you know, a couple of months to get back to you, but I will get back to you. You're a saint, Gary. <laughs> Can you tell us the title of your second book one more time? It's uh, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, How Understanding Prehistory and Giants Helps to Define End-Time Prophecy. I can't wait. Thank you so much. It was an honor again getting to speak with you and going over everything. And to all my listeners, I just want to put a little reminder out there that you don't have to believe in any of this, but in the end, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. So with that being said, thank you again, Gary, and we'll catch everyone on the next one. My eyes are open. I can't get caught in these little traps. 
And I don't need to burn sage because that's witchcraft. We need to stop being mad at the person. It's not the flesh, it's the spirit. We need discernment. It's scary to have it all figured out and you still don't know what's coming. If I say Jesus is coming, then people think it's funny. But all these kids believe in tooth fairies and mummies. I thought Easter was about Jesus. They replaced him with a bunny. Distractions give us more faith in Santa Claus than our Savior. How come the letters in Santa also spell Satan? If scary movies are good, then why do we fear it? Why do these stores like to call alcohol spirits? Help me understand it. The world been looking shady, I just need some answers. I'm seeing men turn into ladies, everything is backwards. The world has been deceiving us with these distractions. How did this happen? Look at this world that we live in, somebody casting spells. When we celebrate Mardi Gras, we just mask ourselves. Think I'm saying too much, am I getting past myself? Is Christmas really about Christ? Now let's just ask ourselves. Okay, God, if they not shook yet, here's the earthquake. Where in the Bible does it say was Jesus' birthday? Social media caused a lot of my worst days. Can't forget the past if we keep throwing back on Thursdays. Everyone thinking it's funny, am I the only one who don't find it amusing? Everybody be talking about purpose, but don't even know what they supposed to be doing. Don't even know if they believe in Jesus, everyone picking and choosing. I can see all of their fame and all of their money, but really they losing. But they go just say I'm hating, they think they winning. Lukewarm Christians in their feelings cause they sinning. The Holy Spirit's conviction got them offended. So let me go ahead and end it cause they won't get it. You can't win every argument trying to twist facts. Manipulation's a form of witchcraft. I had to let go of pride cause I gotta be humble. Because he who exalts himself will be humble. I'm feeling this. Hold on, I'm about to go back in cause I got a lot more to say. <laughs> They're not ready for this. So actually, let me pray on that. Cut it off.